Father's Day once more. Um, if you're just joining us, you missed some pretty good dad jokes, so I'm sorry about that. But um, I, I had a construction one for you, but I was still working on it, so. Hey, hey. All right, if you, if you have a Bible, I don't know why I do this stuff. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is where we are going to be. Uh, We're going to begin a section of John today known as the Upper Room Discourse. So this is now, uh, if you remember back to last week, the end of chapter 12 in the Gospel of John, uh, one of the four Gospels that start the New Testament. Uh, The close of chapter 12 in the Gospel of John is also the close of kind of the public discourses of Jesus' ministry. So uh, now here at the beginning, we see something different. So we move today from kind of public teaching to the more private, intimate, sort of one-on-one, what we might call discipleship, right? Uh, relationships that Jesus has with his disciples. So uh, this is the difference, and please don't hear myself hear, hear me comparing myself to Jesus. It's not my intention. But it's the difference between uh, what you and I are doing right now, right? Listening to me do a kind of public teaching, if you will, and then sitting with me over a meal uh, and, and let's just talk about life and the gospel and Jesus and God. Uh, so we go from um, public teaching to more intimate learning. Both are really important. Uh, both have their place. I would say that there are different seasons in life when different ones of those types of learning uh, and, and sort of relational stuff will affect you differently. I know that there have been times in my life when it was like really the Sunday morning sermons really affected me for a while. Uh, and then there were times in my life when, uh, and I hate to say this as a preacher, I didn't remember half the stuff that was being said on a Sunday morning growing up in the church, but I had a relationship with the pastor uh, and we went out to lunch, we ate barbecue together a lot, drank a lot of sweet tea, and I learned a lot about Jesus and how to follow him. And so you kind of see both of those and that, that's where we're moving today. Now, both are important, uh, and it's important because one of the things that this type of writing, which is called a gospel, right, is trying to do, it's a genre of writing, really, Uh, one of the things that a gospel is trying to do sometimes is invite you, actually, to insert yourself into the story and see yourself as, like, part of what's going on. Uh, See yourself as if you're one of those who are there in that moment, And so we're moving from uh, one of those who are uh, moments where we're hearing Jesus teach out in the public sphere now into one of the moments where we're sitting at dinner with him, right? I would say sitting at a dinner table, but that's not really how it worked, and we'll get to that. And so we need to remember context in order to really fully feel uh, what's going on in the Bible, okay? The Bible is intended to engage your whole person, not just your mind. We talked about this, I think, a week or two ago. There's those three categories of right thinking, right action, but also right feeling. And so feeling what's going on in the Bible as it's going on really helps yourself. So get, let's get ourselves in this moment in John 13, right? You're, pro, you're one of the disciples. You're anxious about what's going on. There's been some strong words happening. Uh, you can feel the tension of Jesus' life. Uh, we're actually in John 13 just hours from his crucifixion. 
Uh, and, and now you're in this room eating dinner, right? You smell the bread, probably. Uh, you can taste the wine they're drinking, whatever the food was, that they're having a Passover meal, if you've experienced that. So uh, you're chit-chatting with the other disciples. They're having a meal. And maybe you're thinking, all right, well, you, you, know, you sort of lose yourself in that tradition, in that moment. You're having a meal, and you're not thinking about uh, what else is going on. And all this tension around Jesus, maybe it's going to be okay. We're just having dinner now. And then Jesus gets up from dinner and does this crazy thing, right? And, and that's kind of like Jesus, that's what he does, uh, and so this is the moment that we're in. So I'm going to read you from John 13, 1 through 17, and then we'll just take some time and, and kind of walk through this together. There, there's like eight sermons in this section, but we're just going to do one for today. It says this, John 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of, his wor- out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet also, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So let's start with the last part of verse 1 there from John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this is kind of a weird, like John starts chapter 13 kind of strange, right? It's like he loved them to the end and all this weird stuff. And so immediately in this section, what it seems like John is doing is sort of painting a picture of the heart of Jesus here, the heart of uh, the true servant leader, Jesus. You remember a number of weeks back, we talked about servant leadership and elders and deacons. And Jesus is really demonstrating here a picture of servant leadership. And, and, and what's inside the heart of a servant leader, especially uh, the ultimate servant leader, Jesus, is a heart that is full of love, full of love for those whom he is leading and serving. And so the language here in the original uh, language is doing something interesting. So listen to the tenses uh, at the end of verse one. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a weird way to put it in English. And so what this means is that in the whole range of Jesus' interactions uh, with his disciples for their entire uh, three years or so together, uh, all of that was was fueled by the fact that he loved them. He loved them. And in the upper room, Jesus is making this sort of the, the overriding point of what he's doing. This is the issue he wants them to see that he loved, and John wants us to know that Jesus loved them 
to the end, which is important for a guy like Peter, right? Or even Judas, that he loved them all the way to the end. And just a little while later in John, in John 13, Jesus is going to say this to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What, Jesus, by how well we debate one another? No. If you have love for one another, he says. And then John 17, 26, uh, Jesus prays to the Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so teaching his disciples, teaching us to live out of love was one of the kind of overall purposes of Jesus' entire ministry, right, is to get at this core, but even more here in this moment in John 13. And so he's saying to his disciples in this room, and he's saying to his disciples in the room that we're in right now, and those of you watching online as well, if you want to be with me, if you want to be my servants, if you want to grow in this authentic sort of relationship with me that we call discipleship, if that's what you really want, then you have to allow your hearts to deepen in love for one another. It has to come from love for one another. And so that's, the, that's one of the questions we're faced with as we look at this example of love from Jesus, is are we willing to do that to this extent, and even beyond that, to the extent that Jesus goes? Are we willing to grow in love at the cost of the, the kind of thing we're going to see today? And so another aspect of Jesus' heart in this is that he knew exactly who he was. He has no doubts about who he is in this moment. And he doesn't use it to lord over anyone. He just knows who he is. We, we see this all, all over the place, but, but even just like from last week, you remember that Jesus said, this is why he had come, right? He said, this, this is why I'm here for this hour. Then notice beginning of verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when what? Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So he knows what he's there for. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knows what he's here for and he knows who he is. He's from God and he's going back to God. He, he didn't forget that he was God. This is what's so amazing about the Incarnation. Jesus doesn't forget that he's God and become human. No, he's both fully. He has all things have been given into his hands. He has all authority, and yet he humbles himself. He uses that authority to humble himself. He's fully conscious of his supremacy, his coming glory, and yet he chooses out of his own will to become, one commentator called this whole section, Lord of the Towel, and I love that. He used that authority to become the Lord of the towel. So this is the heart of the foot-washing Jesus that we see here, a heart that's aware of its royalty, of who he is and where he's from, but also overflowing with this covenant-keeping, passionate, saving love for his people as displayed in his love for these men in the room with him. And if we're going to call ourselves his followers, Christians, little Christs, this has to be true of us as well. Right? We are heirs to the kingdom. That's who we are. We know who we are. We're given all the riches in the heavenly places. But at the same time, that must never change the heart of love that we have because the rightful status of Jesus never changed the loving heart of Jesus. And we have to see the same in us as well by the power of his spirit, that our rightful status as heirs to the kingdom must never change the loving heart of ourselves towards others. Now, again, remember the scene here. They're alone with Jesus. They're focused in 
only this little intimate group of Jesus followers is going to see what's going to go on in this room. And, and thankfully, uh, you know, they record it for us. So um, th- this is the posture that they're all in, reclining at table, right? And then Jesus does the unexpected. He, he gets up. So imagine, it's not that he's sitting in a chair and he stands up. He's like down almost on the ground and he gets up. So it's even more magnified, this, this posture change. Supper, and he performs this sort of last labor of his life before the cross. Now again, remember the setting, remember the tension that's going on and what Jesus, around Jesus and what he's been saying lately. There, there had to be, I mean, imagine you're in that room. There has to be some confused looks, right? And people whispering in there like, what? What's Jesus doing? Like, what's, what's up with this, right? And so our modern English translations use the past tense to describe this moment, but what's interesting is the original language uses the present. So Jesus rises from supper, and this was interesting, just as in the incarnation, he rises from his place of perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He lays aside his garment, just as he lays aside his glory. He takes a towel on himself just as he takes on the form of a servant on himself. He wraps the towel around his waist because he is here to serve. He pours water into the basement, into, into the basin. <laughs> that storm really got me thinking about flooding basements. He pours water into the basin just as he pours his own blood out in order to wash away human sin. And he washes the disciples' feet just as he cleanses his people. And in this really incredible, really poignant moment, Jesus is actually almost staging a portrayal of his whole life from birth to death to the resurrection. This is a dramatization, if you will, of what we read in the book of Philippians chapter 2. You probably know this text if you know your Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus' whole life is dominated by serving others out of love for them. This is the the banner under which his life on earth is lived to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus even said this of himself in Matthew 20. The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, take this moment in with your full range of senses, right? With how awkwardly quiet it probably got when Jesus stood up and put that towel on, got rid of his garments, put the towel on. We have to imagine that... In that awkward silence, you could hear the water being poured into, into the basement. You could, maybe if you were each disciple, you could, it was so quiet, you could hear Jesus breathing as he comes to you to wash your feet, and he, you can hear the water washing your feet, and you can hear his hands scrubbing your feet, and he's washing these pairs of feet, and then he comes to Peter, right? And what does Peter say? Peter, Peter is so like us in this moment. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. It's good old classic Peter. Classic Peter. And as strong as the English is here, the Greek is even more forceful. 
It's more like, Lord, you, my feet, do not wash. No, never shall you wash my feet until eternity. Right? We know about Peter denying Jesus later. This is another sense in which Peter is trying to deny Jesus now. No, you're not going to do this to me, Lord. No way. See, foot washing is the servant's task, and it was never supposed to be done by the master, never by the rabbi, never by the honored one. Uh, The Midrash, which is basically ancient Jewish commentaries, uh, specifies that foot washing could not even be required of a Hebrew slave. Foot washing is so low that it's done by those who the culture considers less than human. This is how low of a task foot washing is. It's beneath human dignity. The servant who is expected to do the task of foot washing is seen almost as subhuman. And so this is why Peter reacts the way he does. And, and so to see Jesus doing this, the master, dressed in a servant's towel, this is absurd. This makes no sense. This doesn't compute, right? Right? And Jesus answers Peter in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, don't hear frustration in Jesus' voice. Hear love in his voice. Peter, I have to do this. I want you to be with me. And if I don't do this, you, you can't be with me. And Peter replies, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head then. Right? Peter doesn't get it, but he wants to so bad. I love Peter for that. I, I relate to Peter in that. I don't get it, but I want to get it. And so he says, Okay, then all of me, Jesus. Right? And so Peter takes one foot out of his mouth and puts the other foot in his mouth. He makes the mistake again. And so he swings so far in the other direction here that Jesus has to say, like, whoa, Peter, hold on, hold on. You're not not getting it. You're not quite there. So Jesus, in verses 10 and 11, says this. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And that's a whole other sermon about, imagine being there and you're Judas, and Jesus says that. Yikes, right? That's a, that's a rough moment. But in Jewish culture and tradition, when somebody had bathed and gotten ready, I mean, just like we would, you know, we, we get ourselves ready, we go over to someone's house, we're clean, we're ready. And when you walked into someone else's house, you only needed to wash your feet in order to be clean. Okay, so... The only kind of modern metaphor, because we don't go around washing our feet in our culture, but especially in the last year, we have been washing our hands a lot more, right? And so in the same way uh, that when I'm cooking or whatever, if I've, if I've taken a shower that morning and I'm making lunch or I'm making breakfast, after I get my I don't need to go take a shower again. I just need to wash my hands because I'm clean, but I got to clean what's dirty off of me. And, that, and that's what's going on here. Once you cleaned your whole self, you only needed to wash your feet in order to be clean. They, they didn't need to bathe all over again because they were already clean. And so as, as those who already have put their faith and their trust in Jesus, the disciples don't need another new radical cleansing, but rather they need just a daily time with Jesus to be cleansed from the effects of sin that they live with as they live in this world now. Okay, This is important. This daily cleansing isn't about changing your status from unclean to clean like it was when you first believed. This is where we can get into trouble and think we can earn salvation. That's not what's going on here. But it's about continually sort of bringing the dirt of the sin and the effects of other sin that's in your life to Jesus so that he can free you from that uncleanliness, so that he can free you from 
that. If you've trusted Jesus, you're clean. You don't need to bathe again. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need to be rebaptized. If you trusted Jesus, you are clean. Your status is set. But Jesus is still inviting you to come to him to be cleansed, to be set free from the effects of sin that we encounter in the daily life of living in this world. So Jesus goes on to finish washing their feet. And when he had finished, he gets up, he puts his garments back on, he again reclines at table, and he continues this sort of relational teaching moment here. So let's keep going. Verse 12. Jesus then asks them a question, and this is a loaded question, right? This is a rhetorical question. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 12. And in Luke's account of the last meal, in Luke 22, we read this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So at this tense moment, when the cross is only a few hours away, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And that's right before we get to this part in John. So this is the background that brings light to this for us, right? Usually when there was no servant present to wash guests' feet, uh, the first one or two people to arrive would perform the ceremony for everybody else. But here, the first arrivals are apparently not in the mood. They're having this dispute. And so maybe this question of who's the greatest is the question that's being argued when they're having supper together and that this had been already, this argument had already begun as they were getting there, as we see in Luke. And so they're willing to fight for the throne, right? But nobody wants the towel. They want the throne, but they don't want the towel. And so Jesus' act in this moment is a powerful teaching lesson. It's a powerful uh, moment. And when Jesus asks them, do you understand? I think they did understand, but they don't want to admit that they understood because uh, although they understood, understood, they did not want to do it. And I can relate to that, right? God, I understand what you want me to do. I just really don't want to do it. I don't want to. I don't want to serve somebody else. I'm busy. I want to be the greatest, and the greatest shouldn't have to do this. And I have to say, as I was reading this and thinking through this text this week, I was so convicted by this. I mean, how can you not be? How often I know and I understand what God wants me to do, but I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to. I want the glory of being first in your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus' response is to hand me a towel. All right, you want to be first? Here's your towel. And I'm like, come on, Jesus, really? And so Jesus gives this challenge in verse, starting in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. That line, since I have been a kid, has rung in my head since the first time I heard it. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus, again, knows who he is. If I then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, have done the most culturally low thing I can do, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Because remember what Jesus just said, you're not Lord and you're not teacher. You call me Lord and teacher and you're right, I am, which means you're not. And if I have done this, then you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. If that metaphor wasn't clear enough, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, if you're KJV, verily, verily, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And you just admitted that you call me Lord and I am. 
And, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. And so Jesus uh, uses what is called in legal terms of, I think it's fortiori. I don't know if I said that right, but just pretend I did. Uh, that's the kind of argument, that's a legal sort of formulation of logic that basically goes, if it's true for the greater, how much more for the lesser? So if it's true for Jesus, who's Lord and teacher, how much more is it true for you and I? One commentator I read this week told this story uh, from the famous pastor and theologian John Stott, which is really just a beautiful application of this passage. In 1878, when William Booth's Salvation Army had just been so named, men from all over the world began to enlist. One man who had once dreamed of himself as a bishop crossed the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. He was a Methodist minister, Samuel Logan Brengel. And now he turned from a fine pastorate to join Booth's Salvation Army. Brengel later became the Army's first American-born commissioner. But at first, Booth accepted his services reluctantly and grudgingly. Booth said to Brengel, You've been your own boss for too long. And in order to instill humility into Brengel, he set him to work cleaning the boots of the other trainees. And Brengel said to himself, Have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to blacken boots? And then, as in a vision, he saw Jesus bending over the feet of rough, unfettered fishermen. Lord, he whispered, you wash their feet, I will blacken their boots. And if you go and you read the history of our own movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance, you will find a similar heart in our founder, A.B. Simpson. He was compelled by the love of Jesus to put on the towel, so to speak, and serve those who were around him who were in such need. And this, I think, is part of what made our movement so compelling in its beginnings. And so if we're to count ourselves as followers of Christ, as little Christs, as Christians, then humble service has to just be a part of our lives. It's just part of who we are. But we're called to be people of the towel. Specifically, we're called to wash one another's feet. It doesn't seem like Jesus means to exclude washing the feet of those outside the church, to use that metaphor of serving others. He's not excluding it, but it is meant primarily for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, which I think is actually more difficult in many ways. Right? It's easier sometimes to humble ourselves and go serve those who we don't know. Right, Wash the feet of those we don't know. But those in our own family that bother us, that annoy us, like i got to serve them, right? Or, or fellow believers in our church that we, that we struggle with or whatever. Uh, Jesus' instruction is clear, though. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash what? One another's feet. And in the one another is another application that I think we so often miss. And, and when we talk about serving, we so often talk about being the one who's supposed to serve. And, and we need to talk about that. Humble yourself and serve others. But not only is there a humbling effect in the washing, but like Peter, there is a humbling effect in receiving the washing of feet. And for me, this is more difficult. This is a harder pill to swallow. This is a really important aspect. I might argue the most important aspect. Uh, you know, we look at our wall here. We have worship, community, and mission. This idea of receiving care from the community of faith is so hard for us. Are you too proud to have somebody serve you? Right? Yes, some of us need to be reminded that serving others is part of what it means to follow Jesus. But for me, I know that I struggle so much more to accept that my feet need to be washed from time to time too. 
We, we struggle to accept somebody else washing our feet. This is pride in us. We can't stand the thought of one of our brothers or sisters becoming the hands of Jesus in spiritually washing our feet, but this is part of living in community, and this is part of what Jesus is calling us into. He, he told the disciples to wash one another's feet, which means somebody has to receive the washing. The call is to serve, but also to accept that there will be times when you are the one being washed as well, when you are the one being helped as well. And if you're like me and you begin to have that thought creep in your head, well, I can't let anybody touch my feet, right? Like spiritually speaking, and also otherwise. I want to remind you of Jesus' words to Peter. That unless you take part in not only the washing, but also the being washed, you're not going to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. Jesus is saying that the church has received this cleansing from him. By faith in Jesus alone, you've been cleansed, you've been set right, you've been given forgiveness of sins, but that in his power and in his authority, we as the church walk together in mutual service and and in mutual receiving and mutual help from one another, and in that we remove the day-to-day dirt of brokenness and sin by humbly serving and by humbly receiving service from one another. So so let's wrap up with verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I wish Jesus would have just said, if you know these things, blessed are you. Or if you know these things, blessed are you if you can teach about them really well. That would be nice. He didn't say we'll be happy if we think about these things or if we learn these things. He didn't say you'll be blessed if you learn the Greek verb tense and the Jewish background of these events. He said, blessed are you if you do them. And if you remember way back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that the word blessed is a word that can mean happy, fortunate. So do you want to be happy? I do, for sure, right? Do you want to live a fulfilled, happy life? Then grab a towel. Become a servant. Do the lowly things for one another. Do the things that you think you're too good to do for one another. We, we don't need to learn more about this. We got to just do it, right? We got to, it's Nike's slogan, just do it. So how do we become people of the towel as we wrap up? I think the most important step in doing what Jesus did here is having what Jesus had, a deep abiding love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With all their imperfections and their flaws and all their frustrating habits like, you know, you and I have that Jesus still loves us through anyway. So we're to be overflowing with love. And if we're not overflowing, because like, can we be honest? We're not always overflowing with love for one another, right? We're not. And if you're like, I always am, I don't think you're telling the truth. And if we're not overflowing with love for one another, then I would challenge you to do these things anyway. Serve one another anyway. And in the act of doing them, experience the blessing of love that Jesus has for you. Don't feel like washing the feet of those around you? Then I guess you don't feel like being blessed. Right? It's a simple equation. Do plus these things equals blessed. Do these things and be blessed. It's simple. So my prayer for us is that we would be a church who continues to humbly wash and receive the washing of one another 
as we walk with Jesus. And I'll let Jesus' words be our closing words. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, your words. We thank you that you inspired people to write these things down so that we might believe and have life in you. And Holy Spirit, we just, we ask you to continually open our eyes to see what's in here for us, to see that not only are you calling us and empowering us to serve one another, but you're empowering us to be served. And sometimes that is so difficult to be helped when we don't want to admit that we need it. And so I just pray that you would draw us together as a community of faith around the table in the next few moments and that we would go out from here living a life that is filled with love for one another, that would draw others to yourself, that would give us opportunity to share that love with others who you might be calling into our family of faith. And Father, we thank you for the time we get to spend. I pray that um, for those of us who are uh, excited about Father's Day and spending time uh, either with our kids or with our dad or calling, that we would do that and, and be glad and encouraged. And for those of us for whom Father's Day is a struggle, I pray that, Father, you would just let your sweet presence be known to those people who um, are struggling with Father's Day for whatever reason. And we ask that you bless the rest of our time uh, as we take the meal in a little bit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, this is from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. This is the blessing I hope that you'll leave with. If you uh, want to participate in communion today, we're going to be doing that in just a couple minutes after the service. And before I forget, you will notice that regular communion elements are back. And so we have the, the sealed ones that you can take if that's more comfortable for you, or you can grab a cup and a piece of bread and uh, we'll be back in this room in a couple minutes. We'll form a big circle and have communion together, okay? This is Numbers chapter 6 again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. 